God who calls us to worship Him, who summons us to give to Him that which He has prescribed for us to give to Him. The God of all universe tells us here down on this lowly planet to come up, to arise, to worship Him. Now, saints, the question that we have to ask in light of such call is simply this. Is God even worthy of such worship? We have God who calls down to us to worship Him, but again, we have to ask, is He worthy of such worship? For example, if you were to ask a child especially my son, Owen. If you were to ask Owen, for instance, you yourself, Owen, do this. Owen, do that. The likelihood of him listening to you is zero. And the reason is because when Owen looks at you compared to when he looks at me, there's a difference in whom I give my allegiance to, whom I feel deem as worthy to listen to. Many of you have experienced that, I'm sure, as a child as well. When a teacher tells you something and they, they tell you something, you might tell them, you're not my father. You're not my mother. Again, what are we saying when we say those things? We're saying that that person who is above me is not above my father or my mother, because if my father or my mother told me those things, then I would really listen. So when God then calls us to worship him, what deems him to be worthy for us to listen to him and for us to give to him <coughs> such worship? Such worship. <clears throat> Saints, we must consider today then who our God is in light of true Christian worship. Who our God is in light of true Christian worship. What makes God worthy of us listening to Him, <clears throat> of us listening to Him, and for us to give to Him proper worship? Saints, if there's anything that we need in the church today, it is going to be a recovery of how we think about God. How we think about God from how we think about the doctrine of the Trinity to its most basic fundamental truth of how do we think about just the nature of God himself? From the sovereignty of God to the holiness of God to the incomprehensibility of God, there are many who are stripping away and in many ways, they are domesticating the transcendence of God, making God to be out like one of us, making God to be someone who is a bigger and better us. We read of A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than this idea of God. 
Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. If we want to give proper worship to God, then we must view God properly. If we want to give the best of ourselves, then we must deem God worthy of the best of ourselves. Simply put, Tozer says, perverted notions of God soon rot religion. Saints, when we look at the landscape of the various churches out, that are out there, and not just charismatic churches, but even Roman Catholic churches, even Eastern Orthodox churches, but let's just say what we're used to. Let's just say charismatic churches and word of faith churches and these churches that are in that vein. What's the problem with these churches? It's not necessarily their music. The problem with, their, with these churches is not necessarily the sermons that are preached. The sermons are rather, what's wrong with these churches is not all the amenities. And it's, and it's not the, the children's program. What's wrong with these churches and what's wrong with every other church in this day and age at least, is their view of God. How do you, how does this church, how does the pastor view God? Again, the gravest question for the church is always God himself. So saints, we want to consider who our God is. And in doing such a study, I must remind you, what Herman Bobbing said, he said that mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Meaning, even when I say we are going to consider God, we're already trying to embark on a task that in many ways our feet probably won't take more than two steps. And it's not because you are, maybe you don't have a GED, maybe you don't have a college degree, maybe the only thing you know is 2 plus 2 equals 4. Saints, let me tell you, even the one who has an infinite amount of PhDs cannot get any farther than a one who simply knows 2 plus 2 equals 4 when it comes to trying to consider who our God is. The reason why, saints, is because the one whom we're going to attempt to speak of this morning, we cannot grasp fully, as you already know. As everything we say about God, there always must be this caveat at the very end. God is so much more. He's so much greater. He's so much greater than what I'm going to say about him this morning. He's so much greater than the songs that we sing of him. He's so much greater than the theological books that we read of him. You are a finite creature who cannot surpass your finitude. You cannot reach into the very depths in the minds of God and say, I got it. Now we can do that with mathematics. We can do that with many ways of philosophy. We can do that with 
the ins and outs of engineering and things like that, we could come to a point where we say, I have fully wrapped my mind around X. But saints, we cannot ever, even in heaven, when we are filled with that glorious specific vision, wrap our minds around who our God is. <clears throat> so saints, bear with me. <laughs> As we try to reach, which we will not do, and mind you, we will probably come out more confused than how we have entered this journey. But we are going to attempt to talk about one of the, if not the highest thing we can say about God. The thing that distinguishes Him from all of creation. You might say, okay, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God, God being in control of all things. Or you might say, oh, well, what distinguishes Him is His holiness. That he is totally set apart from all other things. But saints, what grounds holiness? What grounds sovereignty? What grounds even God being unchanging? What grounds God not undergoing passions like you and I love and things like that? What grounds those things are going to be a doctrine called divine simplicity? Divine simplicity. And again, let me say at the outset, this doctrine is anything but simple. In fact, I cannot say this uh, more elaborately, but I can guarantee you that you will, in the middle of this, be more confused. And the reason why is because it is so unlike anything that we know in this universe. That what we're going to say about God this morning is... It's so unlike anything that we've encountered in this world. There is nothing that we can compare to the simplicity of God. Now, what are we saying? Let's just get into it. When we talk about divine simplicity, what are we saying? Essentially, what we're saying is there is nothing <clears throat> not God that causes God to be God. Now, already, that sounds very, very abstract. There is nothing not God that causes God to be God. Now, let me say also, saints, that as we begin to try to unravel and unfold this doctrine, you're going to start noticing that these are things you already know. I'm just putting a label to them. There is nothing not God that causes God to be God. Or we can say, as the confession says, God is not made up of parts. Now, you might say, okay, of course, God is not made up of parts. God doesn't have arms. He doesn't have legs. God is a pure spirit. We know that already. But saints, when we say God is not made up of parts, we mean more than just body parts. We mean more than just body parts. But what we mean is, God is not, in a way, that makes him, in any sort of way, composite. So if you look at things out in the world, everything in the world is composed of A, B, C, D, E, F, we can go all the way down to Z. That's not what we're saying with God even when it comes down to body parts. So then what is a part then? 
If God doesn't have parts, and we know they're not merely body parts, then what is a part? Well, simply put, and thanks to our brother James Olzal for con- reducing this um, weighty definition down, our, our, our term for us down. A part is anything in a whole that's less than the whole, but without it, the whole would be different than what it is. Okay, that's I'll say it one more time. A part is anything in a whole that's less than the whole, think of the whole here, but without it, the whole will be different than what it is. Let me give you an example, a few examples. Think of yourself. You are a whole. Now let's say, let's take myself, I was to change the color of my hair. Would that change anything about the whole? Well, it would a little bit, but I would still be human. Let's say you cut your hair. Would you stop being human? Of course not. Let's say you change your eye color. Would you stop being human? Of course not. But there is something that will change about you. And what's that? Isaiah will go from no longer being Isaiah with black hair, but now he'll go from being Isaiah from black hair to Isaiah with red hair. Or you'll go from being, um, I don't know, Leela, who has green um, um, nails, to now Leela, who has black nails. So what did I just do there, saints? I made a distinction with the parts that we have. There are essential parts, and then there are non-essential or accidental parts. Now, what are essential parts? What are essential parts? For us, what's essential for us to be? For us to be alive. Well, at a very bare minimum, it's going to be essence and existence. Essence being what you are and existence being that you are. You have to have both in order to be a total package. For instance, a unicorn. We could talk of the unicorn's essence, right? Because we have made up the unicorn's essence. But we cannot talk about a unicorn being in actuality. Why? Because a unicorn does not exist. So you need, we as humans need both a human nature, but also that human nature needs to be actualized and needs to exist. So upon death, why aren't we no longer here on earth? Well, we still have an essence, but we don't have existence. So when we talk about us saints, when we talk about essential parts, essence and existence is what we need to survive. But also there are accidental things about us, right? There are non-essential things about us. Like what? I wish he was here, but we're going to now use him as our guinea pig. Brother Tony. Brother Tony is 6'8". If he grows to be 100 years old, he'll probably be 6'6". Now, when Tony grows to 100 years old, or rather gets to 100 years old, and diminishes down to being 6'6", will Tony stop being human? No. Well, what about Tony if he chose to cut his beard? Is he no longer a human being? Of course not. What if he changed the color of his hair? What if he, what if he lengthened his hair? What we are saying, saints, is there are things about Tony, there are things about you 
that are non-essential to you, that if you change, you will still be you. So in other words, saints, you are a complex individual. You need essence in existence, but also even in the here and now, you need certain features, non-essential features, in order for you to be you. Again, think of myself. If I was to grow a beard, something about me would change. I would go from being Isaiah who is beardless to now Isaiah who has a beard. So we are always in a constant change, right? We're always in a constant change. You right now, before the sermon, you were, your head was clear, I'm sure. But you were in the potentiality of being confused. And I'm sure there are some of you that are now have actualized that potentiality of being confused. But just in a few moments, you're going to actualize the potentiality of not being confused. So you yourself are always changing. There are always things that come upon you. There are things that you have that make you who you are. So then, saints, what are we saying about God then? Why can't God have essential and non-essential parts? Why can't God have black hair and then change his hair to blue hair? Why can't God be composed of essence and existence? Let me give you two reasons why not. Number one, anything that has parts depends on the parts to be. Anything that has parts depends on the parts to be. And number two, anything that has parts requires someone to put them together. Now notice, what's the main thing we're talking about here? Dependence. Dependence. If God has parts, then he depends, like we depend on his parts. God depends on his essence and existence. If God, let's say God loses his essence, no longer God. If God loses his existence, no longer God. But also, saints, if God was to be composed of parts, then then someone would have to put them together. Now, you already know about this, do you not? This building did not come about by itself. You did not come about by yourself. Your parents did not come about by themselves. Your parents' parents did not come about by yourself. This bottle of sanitizer did not suddenly appear with all of its essential ingredients with it. But someone put this bottle together. Everything about this bottle, someone put together. From the color, the labeling, the ingredients inside, the container itself, the lid, the cap, you yourself. Anything that has been, has been put together. Some atheists love to say, well then who made God? Who made God? That's a silly argument. Let me give you the reason why. Because a thing has to be in order for it to give life. A thing has to already be. So we can't say who made God because then we're going to say, well, then who made God who made God? There has to be someone who is the first of all things, who is the being of all. Loosely speaking, God is not 
being. But <laughs> So when we consider God then, or rather when we consider ourselves, you are made up of parts, but also you depend on someone to put your parts together. Again, St. Francisco comes back down to dependence. We depend on a lot of stuff within us. We depend on our essence. We depend on our existence. You depend on your heart to beat. You depend on um, gravity. <laughs> you depend on oxygen. You depend on the chair that you're sitting on now. We're depending on those who made the food later that it will be good. We depend on a lot of things, do we not? And what we're saying with God is, God does not depend on anything. That's what we were saying. God does not depend on anything. Especially saints, when we consider, when we consider, um, our attributes. When we consider our attributes. There are things about you that are non-essential to who you are. For example, you are not essentially loving. How do I know that? Because there are times when you hate. In fact, it is not essential for you to have the attribute of love. It is not essential to you to have the attribute of anger or hatred. So when I say that Isaiah is loving or wise, I'm not saying that I'm loving and wise in virtue of myself. But I'm saying I'm loving and I'm wise in virtue of love and wisdom coming upon me that makes me wise. Again, when I say that I'm loving, I'm not saying that I'm loving because I and myself am love. I'm saying I am loving because of an attribute called love that is given with my essence that enables me to love. Here's the difference between us and God. God does not depend on an attribute called love in order for him to love. Now, here's the exciting part about that. If God did depend on an attribute called love in order for him to be love, there, there once was a time when God didn't love you then God right now could lose his love for you. That that So when we're, what we are saying is everything about God is one with who he is. So if God's love is one with his nature, then God's love is unchanging. Amen. <laughs> if God's love is one with his nature, then he cannot go... An alfalfa type of love, or Darla type of love. She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. She's saying, saints, what, everything, what we already know about God, what's behind it is divine simplicity. Everything you love about God that he doesn't change, that you can depend on him. What's the reason? What's behind that? Divine simplicity. Divine simplicity is the grounds for what we say about God. In fact, it's the grounds for even the best things we love about God. It is divine simplicity. So with God then, God is wisdom itself. God is love itself. God is mercy itself. God loves in virtue of being God. In fact, isn't that what 1 John tells us? God is love. Is love. So to sum up what we're saying is first, God is not a composite being like we are. God is not made up of essential parts or accidental parts. 
God does not depend on anything outside of himself to be. God does not depend on someone to put him together. We have to think that God is just, a lot of people think, might think this, that God, in order to make God, you get, you get the perfection of love, the perfection of mercy, the perfection of grace and all that. You put it in a blender, boom, you get God. God is not made up of his attributes. Now let me say also, saints, if there's anything that we should love hearing about, if there's anything that should excite us, if there's anything that should not bore us at all, if there's anything that should aliven us, that should give us that two disciples on the road to Emmaus type of heart, burning heart, it is this, that God is not like you. That's what we want to hear. I mean, me, myself, I love to love the, those 10 minute, uh, little videos that's, you know, that sports center puts together of like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan and they talk about, you know, they do a timeline of their greatness and they use all this, all these great words to speak of, you know, how great these, these men were. Well, saints, we love, if we love to, if we love to bask in people's glory and people's, and what people have done and their accomplishments, God does not need to accomplish anything. He is God himself. Well, now, saints, we, I'm just giving you a more sufficient ontological reason why. Why we should heed to when God tells us to worship him. Because this one is like none other. This one, when we talk about God being unique, well, have you ever have you ever explored how unique God is? Have you ever considered how different God is? In fact, I don't know who he, maybe Stephen Charnock. He said, it would be strange if God was not strange. It would be weird, right, if God was like you and I. But thank God we don't want a God like us. We don't worship a God like us. Worship a God who is utterly unique. Now, let me just give you one text to consider. One text to consider, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we have an encounter with Moses in the burning bush. Now, what's phenomenal about this scene is that Moses is looking at a bush, but it's not being burnt up. Because we want to think that Moses never saw a bush being burnt before. I'm sure he has. But the interesting thing is the fire, or rather the bush, is not being consumed. So it turns Moses' head, and what happens is God begins to speak to Moses within in the bush. God tells Moses that he has heard the cry of his people. And essentially he's going to do something about it. I pick up the story in verses 10 through 15. And I'll just make some commentary in verse 10. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. <clears throat> and now came, and now come. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, let's stop there. God, in a bush, is telling Moses, who just came out of Egypt, that he has heard the cry of his people, and that he's going to send you to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. It's, it's like God telling you, 
in a bush that's being burned, but it's not burning up, you're going to go to the White House and you're going to tell Joe Biden, stop abortion. What would you say to him? You would say what Moses says. Moses said to him, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Is Moses wrong? He's not wrong in his assessment, is he not? He knows, in fact, Moses is keenly aware of his limitations. Me, Moses, who am I going to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and telling him to let the people of Israel go? Who am I? Now, here's the problem with Moses. He has a right assessment of himself, but he has a wrong assessment of whom the source of his strength is. That's the problem. He understands quite well that I can't do this, but he doesn't understand whom can help him do this. What does God say next? And he said, surely I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that is, I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at his mountain. Now Moses says, okay, that's great. That sounds terrific. God will be with me. And then he has one more question for God. He says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? <coughs> what is Moses saying here? He's saying, you know, God, I believe you can do this. Or maybe he doesn't. But I'm going to have to tell the people of Israel that you've sent me to do this. And when they say, okay, who is this God? We know of gods. But who is this God that's going to take on the most powerful man of the day? Who is this one? Whom shall I say your name is God? And God says the most interesting thing, does he not? He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, that's very strange, is it not? Moses wants to know what the name of God is. And what is he asking here? Well, saints, in this day, a name stood for one's character. A name stood for one's character. So the people of Israel, they're not asking for a name in general, you know, like Isaiah or David or Anthony or, you know, they're not asking so they can say, oh, okay, I know his name. But rather, they're asking, what is he like? Whom is he that will be able, that we can put our trust in, who will lead us out of Egypt under the hand of the most powerful man of the day? Who is he? What is he like? God says, tell Moses, God says to Moses, tell the people I am. I am have sent me to you. What is God is saying is he's saying that the people of Israel can count on me because I'm self-sufficient. 
The people of Israel can count on me to be their sufficiency because there is nothing that causes me to be. You see, here's since, since God doesn't depend on anything, then the people of Israel can depend on the one who doesn't depend on anything or anyone. That's what God is saying. That's my character. Not that I have a good track record, that I'm, you know, in, you know infinite and zero. That, that I, I, I'm, I'm used to getting people out of hardships. But rather, my word is bound up in my name. You see, saints, you may say, I swear on my whatever. I swear on myself. But saints, you depend on many things. You tell your children, children ask you, can we have ice cream? You say, yes, we will. You promise? I swear on myself we'll have children. Well, I'm going to have children. We'll have ice cream. Well, what happens if you die right after you say that? But what God is saying is you can depend on my word because my word's bound on and built on my name, who I am. That is why you can trust me. But I am is still strange, is it not? Because anytime we speak of I am, if you ask me, you know, are you sitting, are you standing? I say, I am <laughs> sitting. I am standing. But saints, here's the difference. My I am's are always qualified. My I am's are always limited to a particular space in a particular time. So I say I am standing. You say I am sitting. All of our I am's are qualified. What God is saying is my I am, who I am, I'm not qualified. I already am. Now you might, here's, here's the great, here's the great encouragement other than God being I am. And nothing in God is with qualification. Is when we pray to God, when we trust God, we can pray, we can trust God without any qualifications. Because his name is I am. That's the great. See how when we view who God is informs our trust in God practically, our worship in God practically. Why do you turn to God when you need help without any reservations? Because he's the one without any reservations. He's the one without any qualifications. He is I am. <clears throat> and God says, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. <clears throat> As we come to a close, saints, how does this doctrine inform our, inform our worship? Does this have any relation to our worship? Because we're to think that everything that we have said thus far is divorced from how we approach God. Again, we're asking the question, is this one who calls us to worship him worthy of worship? Well, I think we've already answered the question. He is. But let me just give you more ample evidence. In order for us to rightly worship God, we must first and foremost rightly view him. In order for us to rightly worship God, we must first rightly view him. The doctrine of divine simplicity informs our worship in two ways. Number one, the doctrine of divine simplicity informs how we view God. How we view God. Saints, think of the things in your life that are worthy of attention. The Grand Canyon, if you were to go, you would marvel at it. 
It is it is worth you as you're I've never been there. If you're driving, it's worth you stopping wherever you can and just going to look. Um Brother Dustin, if he sees something interesting on the road, like he saw a rattlesnake, it demands his attention, mind you. It probably would it would demand my attention as well because you know the the, the interesting creatures. There are many things in your life, right? The smell of food allures you, lures you in, and it demands your attention. So there are many things in this world that demand your attention. Well, compare that to God then. The most interesting one in the world. Does he not demand our attention? When God calls us to worship him, we should automatically, like Isaiah, here I am, God. It, it should, it should, it should cause us to lift up our heads because this one whom we are considering is such worthy of attention. God demands our attention in our adoration and worship. Saints, the the question I have for you, and I I hope you consider this, and I'm not trying to belittle you at all, more so belittle myself as I was studying for this, and, and it was really an indictment on my own thinking, is I had to I had to consider is is how big do you view God in corporate worship? We know things of God, but but have you te- have you taken ownership of those things and said to yourself, what we know that is actually the one who I'm going to worship? How big is God to you? Not taking up space, but how distinct, how different, how worthy, how how utterly unique is this one? And let me tell you, saints, the doctrine of divine simplicity, it really captures the utter incomprehensibility, the utter uniqueness of God. Does your view of God say, this one deserves my worship? Does your view of God say that? The doctrine of divine simplicity, saints, helps us speak of this greatness of God. It helps us see that God is not a God in the midst of other gods. You know, the, the, the false gods of the world, those are the gods that are composite. Those are the gods who are made up of parts. Those are the gods that were made up in the imaginations of men. Men. Put these gods into motion. That is why God is also not in a genus or in a species of other gods, because God is not, He was not put in the motion in the mind of Moses. Before Moses even penned words, God was. If we never existed, God would still be there. Divine simplicity helps us see this, saints. That God is not merely a bigger and better us. That God is not in a category of things that we can categorize. We can't put God in a box. He's not this species of God. He's utterly distinct. No one in church history has described as greater than the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas. He says, when we proceed unto God through the way of remotion, first we deny comporios. From him. And even second, intellectuals, that is goodness and wisdom, according to the way in which they encountered among creatures. And at this point, there remains in our intellect only 
that there is and nothing more. Now that sounded, I'm sure, very strange to you. Let me just break that down. Aquinas here is saying when we approach God, we must first approach him by removing things from him. And he says the first thing we remove is corporeals. What, what does he mean by that? Any sort of way a being can be composed. He's not composed of body parts. He's not composed of form or matter. He's not composed of act and potency like you are. Right now, you are in potency of being hungry. You actually might be hungry right now. And then you will be actual, actualize more and more of these things within you. What we're saying with God is God is pure act. One day we'll do a sermon on just the pure actualization of God. What does that mean, saints? That God cannot love you more than he loves you right now. That's what that means. That God is not on the way of X, Y, and Z. And then he says, even intellectuals, goodness and wisdom. According to the, by the way in which they are counted among creatures. Again, yes, you have goodness, you have wisdom, you have love. But God does not have love the way in which you do. Simply put. And then, after we remove these things, what does Aquinas say? In our intellect, there remains that there is a nothing more. This is what medieval theologians would say, that when you have when you have cloud or climbed up this 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 high mountain of removal, and you've climbed up this mountain of considering God, what you're left with is just a deep sea of pureness. What you're left with is saying just God is. And what do you say other than that? Mind you, saints, if someone was to ask you who was God, the best, most efficient answer you can give is simply this. God is. And nothing else. God is. <clears throat> after we've removed all these things, saints, after we've done away with everything that is creaturely to God and from God, what are we left with? I would argue we're left with the God of Exodus 3.14. The God who says to Moses, I am. The God who says to us, I am. Little ones, there's going to be times in your life when there are going to be those who are going to entice you with an idea of God. There are going to be times in your life when there's going to be those who try to explain to you various theories of God. I tell you this right now, there is only one God, the triune God of Scripture, that is worthy of such contemplation, that is worthy of your attention. There's only one God, and that is the God of Holy Scripture, the triune God, the one who is self-sufficient, the one who does not depend on things outside of himself or even things inside of himself to be. That God is worthy of your attention, and that God is worthy of you giving your entire life unto. It is that God. God who is utterly different from us. And how this infects our worship, Stephen Tarnock says, the true God shall be adorned without those vain imaginations and fantastic resemblances of him. 
which were common about the blind Gentiles and contrary to the glorious nature of God's saints. Isn't this what we see in many of the modern churches today? Worshipping the vain imaginations of who they think God is? Stephen Charnock says, don't even waste your time with such. Don't waste your time with the gods of Islam. That's a vain imagination. The god of Mormonism, the god of Jehovah Witness. Those are vain imaginations. Saints, how are we to think of God then in corporate worship? Stephen Charnock says, let us view him in his greatness and in his goodness. And our hearts may have true value of worship, so great of a majesty, and count it the most worthy employment with all diligence to attend upon him. Low thoughts of God will make low frames in us before him. What Charnock is saying is our thoughts about God matter. What we say, how we think about God matters when it comes to worship. High thoughts of God will bring with it a heart of true devotion and delight of worship. A saint's low thoughts of God will only produce cold hearts and unacceptable worship. Saints, if we soften the way we view God, then essentially what we are doing is we're softening our hearts toward him. We're, we're depriving ourselves. If we soften, if we belittle, if we domesticate the transcendence of God, if we try to make God out to be one among others, then we're doing a great disservice to ourselves. <clears throat> Here's the link, saints, between our high thoughts of God and our emotions of God in worship. Last quote, Charnock says, our affections will be raised when we represent God in the most reverential, endearing circumstances. You come this morning, you might say, man, I'm struggling. I feel so distant from God. One of the great medicines that one can give, and I can probably tell you, is think high thoughts of God. You think high thoughts of God with your intellect, it brings the will with it. And it brings the passions as well. <clears throat> what made those disciples on the road to Emmaus' hearts burn? Knowledge of God. Considering who Christ is throughout the scriptures. And made their passions flare within them and their hearts burning where they say, I need, I want to hear more. That's what we should say after every worship service, is it not? I need to hear more. I need to hear more about this, God. I want to experience this divine presence once again. Saints, when it comes to corporate worship, may the words of the psalmist in Psalm 89, 8, be on our lips and our minds. Lord God of armies, who is like you? Who is like our God? And secondly and lastly, saints, the doctrine of divine simplicity gives us reason to worship God alone. Since the doctrine of divine simplicity says that God is the sufficient reason for himself, we can trust that our worship is not misguided. Let's suppose that God was composed of parts. Let's, compose, let's suppose that God loved in virtue of a attribute called love. Then we would say, we would have to say, then who gave God love? We would say, who gave God this attribute of mercy? And what would happen is that our hearts would be divided. 
Because we would have to look for the one who gives God A, B, and C. We would have to look for the one behind God. But saying so, this is the great news about divine simplicity and true worship. When God calls you to worship, we can trust that there is no one in back of God. But the one whom you're worshiping is true. We, we don't in life, we don't want to do anything that is wasted. Wouldn't that be, that's why I feel so sorry for, for Muslims and Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. I don't know if you feel the same way, but they're wasting their time. A waste of time, a waste of a life. Saints, wouldn't it be a shame if we wasted our life? Wouldn't it be a shame if we wasted our time, if God said, you know what, that, that one you were worshiping that whole time, um, it was actually misguided. You should have worshipped this one behind me that actually gives to me this. The saints, we're not wasting our time. We're not on the authority of God's word. We are not wasting our time because the one who we're worshipping, the heart, the words, our minds, our thoughts, our wills, it's all directed toward this one, the triune God of Scripture, and we can trust that we don't have to look in back of him, to the side of him, to the left of him, but the one whom we are worshiping is the one true and holy God. He is the living God. And the doctrine of divine simplicity helps us see that we don't have a heart that's divided, but we have a heart that's united we worship our triune God. We unite our voices with the angels. We unite our voices with the saints who have come before us. We unite our voices with those who are uh, uh, 20 miles, 30 miles, a million miles away from us. Those who worship the true God of Holy Scripture. Saints, I leave you with this, that when God calls us to worship, heed to that calling. It is this God who I, quite honestly, didn't even scratch the surface on who he is. It is this one who is beyond our depths, who we can't say a highest thought of. We can't say a deeper thought of. You know, people, when you hear them saying things about God, you say, man, that man is smart. But, you know, as Augustine says, at the end of the day, what are we really saying about God? What are, what are we really saying about the one who is incomprehensible? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't say anything. We have to say something so we're not reduced to silence. But sometimes it's good to be in silence. Sometimes it's good to just live in the, the darkness and have this, as what Aquinas says, this, this darkness of ignorance. Because whom we worship is, is totally, utter, utterly unique. And it's this one who calls us to worship. And let us every morning heed, and every afternoon as well, heed to such call. Let's pray.